Welcome, you're listening to The Dietetic Discussion with me, Dr. Anne Holdaway. In today's podcast, we'll be exploring the role of the Advisory Committee on Borderline Substances, the ACBS, and its relevance to clinical nutrition and the world of dietetics. Before we get stuck into the discussion with today's guest, Emma Emerson, I thought I'd provide a little insight into the evolution of the ACBS. Established in 1971, the ACBS replaced an earlier committee which had been set up to meet a perceived need for advice for GPs in a difficult area of prescribing. Members of the ACBS were appointed on a voluntary basis, and the purpose of the committee at this time was to give independent medical advice to the medical profession and the Department of Health on whether certain products, including medical foods, should be made available on prescription by GPs for the treatment of particular medical conditions, thus allowing continuity of care if a patient was started on a product in hospital and there was merit in continuing with the product after discharge. In June 1992, the terms of reference of the ACBS was redefined with the sole criterion used by the committee in determining whether or not a particular preparation should be regarded as a drug and whether it had a therapeutic use in the treatment of disease in the community, and thus whether or not it can be prescribed by GPs at NHS expense. The committee's recommendations had no legal force and were in place as guidance only, but were widely accepted by the medical profession with prescribing powers. In December 1992, the terms of reference of the ACBS were extended by the Secretary of State for Health at that time to have regard to comparative cost as well as therapeutic use when considering whether an item should be made available on prescription at NHS expense. In October 2002, responsibility for providing a secretariat for the ACBS transferred to the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence from the Department of Health and has remained in place there ever since. With a drive to initiate and maintain care in the community and the average length of stay in hospital now being less than a week, the ability to provide ACBS endorsed products to initiate and continue care seems even more crucial. And with more and more dietitians becoming supplementary prescribers, now seemed a perfect opportunity to dedicate this podcast to the role and function of the ACBS. Before we delve into this week's discussion, I just want to give a big thanks to the team at Nutrinovo for supporting this podcast. Without them, the podcast simply wouldn't be possible. And I'm delighted uh, as one to have such an innovative company supporting the pod. So hello, this is Anne Holdaway and you're listening to The Dietetic Discussion, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of our leaders in the field of nutrition in the UK and in which we consider some of the great areas within dietetics through an objective and evidence-based lens. Our goal is quite simply to provide our audience, including dietitians, with factual and insightful information. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by registered dietitian Emma Emerson. Emma qualified as a dietitian in 2002 and quickly progressed into management posts. Emma's moved to her current trust, Northumbria Healthcare, to become head of nutrition and dietetics in 2018. In November 2019, Emma started an internal secondment as the trust first AHP strategic lead to scope out what the trust requires from such a post. 
During her career, uh, Emma has sat on the parental and enteral nutrition group for 10 years. And that's where I personally came into contact with Emma and we worked together for a period of time. Uh, so it's great to have Emma with me today. But also Emma's taught on the master's accredited Penge master's course. She's an original contributor to the Penge pocket guide, specifically the critical care section. She was an advisor to the 2011 NC pod report, a mixed bag, and currently holds a seat on the ACBS committee. So I'm delighted to welcome Emma today uh, to join me in this podcast. Hi, Anne. Thanks. So thanks, Emma. So to get stuck into this day's discussion. Um, so first, Emma, I'd like to ask you, can you just tell me and the audience who are listening about your journey as a dietitian? Yes. So you've already highlighted I qualified in 2002 and I started as a basic grade dietitian in the northeast in Sunderland and um, did a few rotations as basic grade and then senior two in the good old days. Uh, but then I took on my first senior role in ITU and that was a particularly interesting role because dietetics were not embedded as part of the MDT. So it was a real challenge to take that role on to prove the impact of what a dietitian can have in such a, a patient population that were so poorly. So I really enjoyed building a rapport with the colleagues and improving the impact on patients' care and um, very quickly became a very much valued member of the MDT. It was during this time that I joined the Pension Committee um, to have, you know, I had an opportunity to work with colleagues out with the trusts that I worked in. It was through this that I was given the opportunity to update the critical care section of the Penge Pocket Guide and was um, nominated to uh, do the NCPOD report. Uh, and just having that specialist role really opened up so many opportunities for me. Um, after that role, I went through to be community team lead. So I flipped from acute care to community and built up that team, um, nutrition support mainly. And then that led me to apply for my first head of service role at another trust and did that for several years and then that's led me to the trust that I'm in now as another head of service so I've had a bit of a varied journey very much thrown into management but very much a bit of clinical leadership as well. And I think what you've demonstrated there, Emma, is, is you're a great role model for the profession. I've, I've always thought that of you, you know, in the committees that you've worked on and, and seeing your career um, uh, develop and, and you grow as an individual. So I'm sure that our audience will uh, re really be inspired by hearing that journey because it just mm. goes to show you how you go from clinical dietetics in a very clinical role, making a difference in everyday practice. So how you progress to really making a difference in the wider world. So coming back to the ACBS and the purpose of today's discussion, I'd like to hear what inspired you to get involved in the ACBS and how long have you been on the ACBS committee? So the, the inspiration came from yourself, Anne, I'm not going to lie. I was on the pension committee um, and really enjoying being as part of a role, again, outside my kind of day-to-day -day job, just seeing a different angle of dietetics and leadership. And the opportunity came up to join the ACPS. And it was something that I, I suppose, didn't really fully understand. You, we knew the terminology, but didn't overly understand what the role was. But I was really interested because I really enjoyed being on the pension committee. thought it would be something a bit different. So, um, and with my background, obviously, with nutrition support, uh, it was something that I thought, actually, I would really like to know and understand and be part of it. 
um, and I joined in 2016. So I've been, this is year five of me being on the committee now. And is there a, a duration in terms of how long you can be on the committee for? Yeah. Yeah. So you're initially appointed for three years. So you hold a term for three years and at the end of the three years, you can reapply to sit on the board or you can obviously decide that you want to um, move on and allow other dietitians or other colleagues to take part. But I've, uh, I think I've just signed again. So I think I'm <laughs> going on to my second or third term. So yeah. yeah, well, well done for sticking on in there. And I think what you do take to that committee from my knowledge of the committee, and as we were saying, we're in talking about the history of it is, it, you know, it's really important that we have dietitians uh, with a seat around that table because, you know, we'll come on to this, but we will certainly look at how, how we use the ACBS endorsed products in, in practice. Um, so what's the actual process then for becoming a member what were you subjected to to becoming a part of that committee Emma so um, my personal experience was an application so you had to form your interest through just general questions what why do you inspire to be part of the committee I then went for a face-to-face interview down in London so I got a little trip down to London and was um, interviewed as part of a panel it was it was very welcoming it didn't feel too um, scary there were a lovely panel but you obviously go to um, promote yourself as a clinician and why what you can bring to that to that committee so yeah so it is a formal process but I think there are other opportunities that you can co-opt and be a, a member that you are not officially appointed that you can go in and shadow and have that opportunity to observe as well so there is a couple of routes onto the committee and I think uh, you know picking up on that co-option I think it would be lovely if members of the profession if they were thinking of moving into this area or wanted some Mm -hmm. further insights into the committee is is to explore that and we might put that in the show notes about how you might go along and and uh, and be an observer I know you can do that with with the NICE committees and now the ACBS Mm -hmm. sits under the remit of NICE and Department of Health I think you know that's a lovely option to learn about the process so how has the committee evolved? Have you said, would you say it's changed over the last few years? I know historically uh, when uh, my colleagues were on the committee, they talked about, you know, there was a, there seemed to be a lot of dermatologists because they also review sort of skin yeah. preparations. Would you say the committee's changed over the last few years since you've been involved and how has it changed? Yeah, so the membership is much more diverse than what it was when I started. I think I was one of three dietitians, four dietitians on the panel, but it was very um, medically led and there was a lot of um, dermatologists, but there was also other forms of phys- physicians as well. Um, the the committee, I think, now has about 10 dietitians on, whereas there was three or four when I started. So the, 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 the membership has absolutely evolved to meet the, the skill set that actually is required for the type of products that are coming through. They're very, very predominantly our nutritional-based products. So yes, the committee has changed massively. There is a lot more mix of pediatric and adult dietitians on there as well. So we've got that skill set from both pizza and adults. Which is reassuring to know that, you know, <laughs> I, I know for one, I'm not an expert in paediatrics. I would never claim to be. So I always say hand over to my paediatric colleagues on that basis. <laughs> so it's good to hear the ACBS has that covering sort of the, the, the you know, span of ages as such. So coming back to sort of present day, Emma, has the role and remit of the ACBS and how far that remit extends changed, would you say, in your point of view? 
Yeah, I think so. I, obviously, when I started back a few years ago, um, as I said before, it was a committee that I'd heard of, but maybe didn't fully understand. And what I've noticed in the time that I've been on the committee is, yes, the membership has evolved, but I think the remit is evolving to try and meet those changing demands of our patients and the population. And the products that come through are very different Um you know, lots of more of innovation that's happening. I think the reach as well for me is is certainly changing. I've got junior members of staff in my team who who know it and understand what it is. And we also have student dietitians that actually talk about it. Now, I probably would never have done it. It was around when I was a student. Um, I probably wouldn't have talked about it or understood. So I think that the presence of the committee and the importance of the role around providing that assurance around the evidence base of the products that come through is really is really important but I think it's much more understood now Mm. I I would just say you feel there's quite a weight on your shoulders then in terms of you know the committee are responsible for whether these products are actually uh, approved or not yeah absolutely I think when when you are assessing a product there's there's lots of detail there but you have to really understand from a patient's perspective is this the right thing so yes, yeah. there is there is a bit of a weight on your shoulders, yeah. Yeah, and and just in relation to that, do you feel there's a misunderstanding at all amongst dietitians? You've talked about some of the varying knowledge and understanding of ACBS in your team that you come across locally. Yeah. Do you think that could be multiplied up on a national basis? That you know there is some misunderstandings uh, amongst dietitians as to the role and remit of the ACBS, and would you mm-hmm. like to sort of elucidate on that if there is? So, yeah, I think it's maybe not an, a misunderstanding. It's just an, they're just not aware or maybe just a bit unaware yeah. of the actual presence and the process that products have to go through mm. um, for them to be available to be prescribed at the NHS expense. So a misunderstanding possibly, but just a, probably a lack of awareness as yeah. well. Yeah. And hopefully through this podcast, people will understand, yeah. you know, it's pretty important and it's important yeah. that dietitians understand it because it's yeah. our route through for uh, medical nutrition products as as an example to yeah. make sure they're available. And we'll, mm-hmm. we'll discuss, uh, discuss that a little bit further. Mm-hmm. So um, if the ACBS didn't exist, how how would you see that that would affect dietetics and dietetic practice? So I think for me, the presence of the committee really helps to raise the profile of our profession and the expertise in the area of prescribing. So really thinking about the nutritional products, we are the best skilled practitioner to manage these types of products. And it's always something that dietitians say, actually, I know what I'm talking about and I know that this is the right prescription. So having the dietitians on the committee to be part of that process and understanding that this product is suitable, hopefully would provide that assurance to our dietetic colleagues, you know, across the UK. Obviously, if the products didn't have to go any through any type of process, then for me, there would be no assurance for me as a mm. dietitian sitting in clinical practice to say, actually, has this been checked? Is this the absolute right product? Does it look right? Is it the right composition for what the product is claiming to be? So for me, it's twofold. If it wasn't there, then I don't think we would have the opportunity to promote our profession. But also as a clinician, if it wasn't there, then you would wonder, actually, is this product got the right level of assurance to be used? 
Yeah, and I think it's so true, isn't it? We see that out there in practice, uh, that there is uncertainty and, and the mm-hmm. remit, if you go back to what we were saying about the remit of the ACBS, it was mm-hmm. established where there were areas of prescribing that medical practitioners weren't comfortable with. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's about giving that assurance. Now, in giving assurance, um, there has to probably be a rigorous process. Um, so mm-hmm. could you talk us through, really, an overview of the ACBS? CBS approval process for products. Mm-hmm. So there, there's there's three types of applications that can come through to the CBS. So the first one is a type one, which is new formulations that have been um, that have been claimed to have advantages, and where there's no comparable product already on the market. So that would be um, a company to think that they've got this brand new product. It's new and shiny and there's nothing else on the market so that would be classed as a type one the type two is for formulations that are broadly similar in composition to something that's already available on the market so it might be that a company's got a product that they think is similar to something already out there but they want to bring their own spin on it um, now it's the type one and type two is they go through and are reviewed at the committee meetings so they're the ones that we go into quite a lot of detail around looking at the application. Then you've got a type three application, which is just changes to existing products that have already been approved by ACBS. So these type of um, applications are reviewed throughout the year um, by one of the committee members, then we will just sense check the uh, claims that are on the application. But it's the type one and type twos that have got quite a formal rigorous process that are assessed um, by the committee. Uh, there are quarterly meetings that we attend. Mm. So see these three categories, as you say, mm-hmm. and yeah. are there any barriers? I mean, obviously for, you know, industry, for the commercial companies, uh, like mm-hmm. with any medical industry, like the pharmaceutical industry, you're looking to mm-hmm. meet a specific clinical need as mm-hmm. well as looking to get the competitive edge as, a, as yeah. a company, thinking about, you know, having worked it as a, in a company myself in the past. So um, do you perceive any barriers through that process? Do you perceive any barriers to to product innovation? Me personally, no. I don't think there's any barriers to innovation that I can see. I think it's, it's always great to see new ideas and products, but as long as they're relevant to our patients' needs, you know, that's, that's where it always comes down to because at the centre of everything that we do is our patients. Hmm. And innovation is fantastic, but as long as we can understand that actually this will suit this patient population that we're indicating it for. Yeah. And and coming back to that, when, you know, you're, you like seeing like a new project and thinking, wow, you know, this got mm-hmm. to market, if there was very mm-hmm. definitely a clinical need that you can see a clinical benefit. How yeah. do the ACBS actually judge that? So what factors do the ACBS uh, use? What data they, do they use to take yes. into consideration how they would uh, approve a product? You know, so when they're in, uh, evaluating it, what sort of data has to be provided yeah. by the companies? Yes, so when the applications are are completed, they have to, I suppose, indicate what clinical indication they are promoting the product for, they've created that product for. Um, So we we would very much assess the product against that and try and and that's why you will have such a diverse skill set on the committee because we'll have somebody in the committee that actually works clinically into that and absolutely understands the evidence base behind that patient condition. So we would understand that and ensure that there's a relevance there. Obviously, we would have to understand, is there a need? 
for that product mm. in the in the way that they've indicated it. Um, if it's a new product, we want to understand: is it, it um, been acceptable? Have they had a trial, an acceptability study? Because products at the end of the day the patients need to want to have them and take them and tolerate them so it's we need to see that that has been tested and, and tried um obviously efficacy has it been shown to work is there evidence out there to say this type of product will absolutely benefit our patient population and cost you know we have to look at cost it's not the nhs expense and we need to make sure that whatever costs are there to our nhs is, is a reasonable ask so there's certain mm. things that we will go through and assess the product on um and often agree or challenge at that yeah. point and with efficacy, I mean, within the world of dietetics, we've talked more and more about patient-centred outcomes. Yeah. Um, is that being built into sort of some of the, you know, uh, product trials about, you know, historically mm-hmm. dietitians looked at weight and body mass index, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to, say, nutrition support products? Would you say in these areas, you know, in terms of efficacy, I mean, some of the other products, not just confined to medical nutrition products like oral nutritional support products, but some of the other products for metabolic conditions. Mm-hmm. Is there sort of, you talked about tolerance, so I assume that's like gastrointestinal tolerance, yeah. what happens with their bowels, um, yeah. how does it taste, you know, is it acceptable from a taste perspective, mm-hmm. is it easy to use? So what sort of other outcomes uh, are you beginning to see in some of the product trials in terms of their efficacy? So, yeah, you're, you're right, we, t- we do tend to look at tolerability around taste, um, GI, any GI upsets, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, I think with some of these products, it would be good to understand that, yes, if there is any other outcome measures around, could we think about weight gain or any other um, anthropometrics? I think to be fair with the time scale of the products, we, they, mm. we don't ask for that because that's quite a long, more of a long term outcome, I suppose. But yeah. what we do ask is for some other evidence, maybe some RCTs mm. um, that are supporting papers around actually there is an evidence based uh, already to say that this type of product work with this particular composition. And that tends to be what the products will aim they're at product on aligning to the evidence base it's just their particular formulation that they're wanting to show but it would be good to understand if there's a a scope for actually thinking about if there is any other outcome measures that we could consider Mm, yeah particularly you know the patient-based outcomes yeah yeah Yeah. and often I think the companies will be considering that as part of their studies Mm -hmm. whether it's used for the ACBS submission yeah but actually in undertaking a study to to add on other other markers in terms mm-hmm. of your primary and secondary outcome measures, I think mm-hmm. that's valuable then, yeah. even if it's not needed for ACBS approval, it's it's very valuable in knowing uh, yeah. you know, how that product could induce those benefits if it's yeah. used in practice. You briefly touched about the timing uh, then when we were talking. And so I wonder, is there a typical timescale for product approval or is that really difficult to say because there might be some going back and forth? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's, it would be really hard to say this is our usual time mm. um, timeline because you're right, we, we have uh, three meetings per year. So there is three opportunities per year for companies to submit their application to be reviewed. But absolutely, it could be that the committee says, actually, we want to know more information about X, Y and Z. So it would go 
back to the company and it would come back. So there's no ideal time frame. It can be very quick or it could be a bit more uh, protracted. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, if there's missing data or you want yeah. more reassurance, yeah. you might be going back asking for yeah. that. Yeah, I can yeah. see how that happens. And if a product isn't ACBS approved, I, mm-hmm. I, I do remember a situation years ago where my liver patients uh, loved a particular high protein product and there wasn't one at the time that had been endorsed. Um, mm-hmm. So if a product doesn't receive ACBS approval, if it isn't endorsed and approved mm-hmm. by the ACBS, mm-hmm. can practitioners and groups like in the in England, we have clinical commissioning groups, can they still prescribe it at a cost to the NHS? So they can, but I think it would be, the questions would possibly be raised. So for example, you know, it could be a particular prescriber in community, a GP maybe, for example, may prescribe a product that's not ACBS approved, but it may raise a question around why are you asking for this if it hasn't been because it's on NHS expense. So I think there is ways and ways around prescribers, but I think questions would be asked around the justification of why that product. Mm-hmm. And coming on, obviously, uh, you know, we've got supplementary prescribing now for dietitians, which was mm-hmm. a big breakthrough. And mm-hmm. it'd be lovely to have independent prescribing. So do you think more dietitians should have prescribing rights? You've, cle- you've clearly worked in this field clinically and trying to in- influence prescribing practices in your own region. Yeah. Um, so do you think more dietitians should have those prescribing rights? And what impact might that have on patient care and, and, yeah. and costs as well? So I think, so the answer is yes. Um, I think in certain aspects of dietetics, having the right prescribing rights would be really beneficial. Because I said that before, we've got the clinical expertise, so it'd be great just to take ownership of that patient journey Mm. and be that prescriber and manage that patient. You could say that if we had that more rounded journey around prescribing, would there be a perceived increased quality of care and outcome for certain patients? So could we manage them more effectively could we utilize the food first techniques and bring in the prescription at the right moment but get mm. our patients to the right outcome and fin- and stop that prescription when it's right for that patient mm. so i think absolutely i'm you mentioned independent i'm all thinking all for that i think if we could take that one step further and be independent prescribers i think that'd be a massive benefit for our profession mm. yeah and i suppose my only concern in that knowing for example, the field I work in is malnutrition and disease-related mm-hmm. malnutrition. Is, you know, we're now uh, striving to get more dietitians in primary care who could perhaps yeah. manage that journey and manage yeah. the continuity as patients go from an acute setting under acute dietitians to dietitians in primary care. I suppose the one concern is there's a bit of a lag between having enough dietitians. Yeah. Uh, out there in in the primary care setting and hopefully with the campaign the British Dietetic Association are are pursuing really to get more dietitians in primary care and the primary care networks that might begin to address that and I mean what would you consider if if, uh, you know more dietitians had that prescribing right but but not that it would solely be down to just dietitians is there a way where you could still have other practitioners prescribing I know I work with a lot of nutrition nurses um, Mm -hmm. so that might be an option for working as well yeah absolutely it's about that kind of blended workforce isn't it it's about who's in the right clinician for the right time for that right patient so yes I think we can't say that we need to be the sole prescriber of certain products but having that increased skill would be certainly helpful in certain 
pockets of areas of dietetic practice. Yeah, yeah. And um, do you think that student dietitians get enough education? You touched on this earlier, actually, but do you think that students dietitians get education around the role and remit of the ACBS I'm just thinking with some of the um, universities um, mm-hmm. is it part of their course I'd, I'd be a bit out of touch with that knowing whether it's actually part of their curricula but do you know are you aware that it's part of the curriculum or do you think there would be merit in in it being part of the c- curriculum so as, I, as you say, I'm, I'm not 100% sure either. I think it's hard to say it's a blanket. No, there might be pockets across the the country. There were some, it's in some curricula for some mm. of the, the universities. Um, but I think the way that we, um, our students are, are learning and being taught is they're being taught more about the diversity of the role of dietitians and mm. kind of my journeys. I've I've kind of dipped my toe into committees out with the trust that I worked in. So I think there's a great, you know, um, big great benefit for students to actually understand what leadership roles dietitians can be on. And certain committees mm-hmm. like this absolutely promotes what we do. So if it's not there, I think it's certainly something that should be explored. Yeah, and I think you know, with all of these roles, whether it's on other nice committees um, mm-hmm. and and committees like the ACBS, is about getting that seat at the table, making sure you have a voice, making sure yeah. you share your voice on your views, um, because I yeah. think that really does begin to rail, raise the profile of the profession, and like you say, mm-hmm. demonstrate our worth demonstrate our knowledge you know if you have other practitioners around the table I think you can influence them when they hear you talking about the products and talking about that field of nutrition very competently that they begin to see how you set yourself apart as a dietitian and I think Mm -hmm. it comes back to this you know if, if if dietitians were uh, leading on on the prescribing of these products that's fantastic we can support mm-hmm. other members of the team mm-hmm. so it maybe just isn't only in our remit but sits yeah. with others to make sure that we we provide that care seamlessly and, and yeah. work with other members of the healthcare team so I like the term this blended blended working it was a term I came across yesterday about blended learning uh, as well so it's obviously a, an in term at the moment but I think is, that really yeah. captures that you know working seamlessly within teams within the multidisciplinary team and then mm-hmm. across settings as well uh, and and that's all about providing that uh, you know seamless patient care isn't it yeah, as they absolutely. go from one setting to the other mm-hmm. um so mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i'm aware i'm very aware at the moment that there's a consultation uh, out uh, that the acbs have put out there um, mm-hmm. and i do hope that anybody uh, involved in uh, clinical nutrition and in prescribing or recommending acbs products is actually participating in the consultation um, but can you explain what the current consultation is about? I know the consultations uh, was was highlighted in the I think the the actual uh, forecast for the you know the the work uh, stream for the ACBS for the year. But mm-hmm. can you explain to our audience what the current consultation is about? So the the, co- the consultations around the committee looking to update and standardise everything that we do with the ACBS process. <laughs> Um, and as far as I know, this is the first stakeholder consultation that we've had in relation to this process. So it's 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 really to try and obtain feedback from 
our colleagues, obviously we're encouraging our dietetic colleagues to give their feedback, but also our wider MDT um, around um, what they would like to see, how they feel it could look like moving forward. Um, so we're really keen to look at how the indications have been determined. So the indications that companies are matching their products to, um, the application process, and obviously which products are absolutely required by patients and therefore need to be um, prescribed at NHS expense. So it's, it's looking at the whole process of what we do and how we work. So it's to really get kind of gather some rich information from our, our stakeholders, our colleagues, to try and shape how we work moving forward. Mm. And in some of those areas, I've seen, um, you know, it's asking about things like pack size and the inclusion mm -hmm. of fibre in the descriptions and protein. And so is the idea that the ACBS will use that, the findings and the response? Because I know that some of the areas they're asking um, really touch into what we call the regulatory uh, mm -hmm. process and regulatory affairs so mm -hmm. things like the use of fiber the amount of protein in, in feeds has always been uh, linked in with with regulatory aspects uh, mm -hmm. of these products that the medical industry abide to so um how might the acbs use that finding to inform dietetic practice so I think for me personally, we obviously we're I'm waiting in anticipation as well mm. to see to see what what the results show because you can have a perception of what we think it needs to be like, but we need to gather that information from all of our colleagues. I think it would be hard for me to say how we're planning to use the findings because I have I don't know what it's going to come out mm. like, but I certainly think. For us, it's about gaining some intelligence and thoughts around actually how can we make things just more standardised because we do some see a lot of variation in applications and mm. as, as, as clinicians on the committee, it can make our job slightly more difficult in assessing these products. So I think it's a benefit to us as a committee um, in allowing us to assess products but also benefit for dietitians in practice to see actually this is a real standardised process that this product's been through and we're trying to keep it as, as consistent as we can. Mm. And one of the issues I always have with, you know, when you start talking about the products and the different pack sizes, mm. you know, is it about the volume, the energy density? And mm -hmm. and I would hope that any moves would make it clearer for yeah. anybody prescribing these products yeah, to try absolutely. and avoid prescribing errors. Really, That's it. It? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it's how we work towards that. So mm -hmm. we wait with bated breath then really to see <laughs> how the response is. I do hope that there's a lot that have participated because I think like mm -hmm. you say there is variation in practice there's variation mm -hmm. in in what's submitted to the committee to make their decisions on and and anything that uh can be scoped that involves stakeholders right across from dietitians uh, medical practitioners the medical and nutrition industry will hopefully mm -hmm. you know help help the acbs streamline you know what they're doing and, yeah. and make sure like they they meet their remit which is to provide advice and guidance on on the products and make sure they're mm -hmm. used effectively and cost effectively as well which comes back to the the remit of the committee in the first place yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. And is there anything you want to add about, uh, you know, the direction of the ACBS, where it's going, what you know of it? It might be quite difficult to say. Um, and, and no doubt it's been challenging over the last year, having virtual meetings like every, everybody's had to adapt to this yeah. virtual environment, not having those face-to-face meetings when yeah. you have those sort of uh, more gentle introductions to subject areas and people mm-hmm. in the room. Um, mm-hmm. How is there anything you want to add about your own experience through the pandemic and just your own experience on the committee so far? Yeah, so yeah, so I think last year has been an interesting one. Uh, I think we've all felt it in different ways and um, we have managed to maintain our uh, meetings. Uh, I think we did stand down one or right at the beginning of the pandemic because we are all on the committee voluntary. We all have or other day jobs to do. But we have, we quickly changed the virtual uh, format, which we're all quite a fair with now. Mm. And it's, it's it's nice, but you can't beat being in a room with your colleagues and having that real good critical discussion about products. It's been a challenging year, but the committee is very committed to keep going and try and work with our colleagues to make sure that our applications are getting through as swiftly as we can. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing, as I say, what the results say and, and how we're going to move things forward. Great. And Ed, if you had some advice for anybody listening into this and they're thinking about, oh, I'd like to get involved in mm. the ACBS um, committee, is there any advice you would give them about how they would skill up, you know, what actual mm. skill set I could imagine, you know, is mm. is to know how to review the evidence mm. and, and critique it? Um, mm-hmm. is, is there anything else you would think, yeah, these are some tips. If you're thinking you might like to get involved, uh, these are the skills we'd look for and this is how you might skill up. Yeah. So you've touched on that. You have to be all about the detail. So you have to be really uh, hot on your detail, being able to look through the, the applications. But you also, I suppose, have to have just a real good understanding of the the product that you're working at. Yes, we don't all have the general skill set that I could absolutely understand everything, but you could absolutely look at a product and think, right, I can go through this and understand the, the rationale. From a skill point of view, um, you have to be able to talk um, quite confidently about a product because you are given a product as you're the rapporteur, it's called. So you take ownership of that product. So you've got to report back on that to the rest of the colleagues. You've got to be quite confident in speaking to a diverse group of clinicians in the room. Mm. Um, But I think if, if anybody is interested, it's a fantastic opportunity to take your skills and use them in a slightly different way than you probably would do in everyday practice it's it's good working on your critical appraisal skills absolutely so yes I would absolutely encourage anybody to do it yeah and I think what you're sharing Emma on this uh, podcast is you don't bite and if anybody was interested (laughs) and wanted to hear more I'm sure you and other people on that committee would be happy for uh, you know, any colleagues to reach out to you really yeah, to absolutely. say, mm-hmm. you know, can I hear a bit more about this? I'm yeah. thinking of applying. And like I did for you, it was that encouragement when you when you yeah. see somebody and you think this person would be really good on this committee <laughs> um, because, you know, they've got the skill set. So mm-hmm. I think sometimes we just need that encouragement, don't we? Yeah. Because we, we under, underestimate our own skills at times. So, yeah, yes. that coercion and encouragement, it normally is. <laughs> I was going to say it was gentle encouragement. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just to finish, I know that 
many listening uh, will, you know, be inspired listening to somebody like you, Emma, and how your career has developed. So is there anything you want to share with our audience? If you were starting out as a graduate again, you know, what might you tell yourself for starters? Well, that's a hard one. I think the first thing I would say is slow down a bit. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a quick person. I like to do things quite quickly. Um, but I think it's it's about taking it all in because uh, and being more confident in some of the decisions. Because as dietitians, we are um, autonomous practitioners and we often have to be brave and speak up for what we believe in for our profession and for the patients. So if I had to kind of give myself some advice, I would say slow down, but be confident in yourself and know that what you're doing is absolutely the right thing. Yeah, very good, solid piece of advice there. <laughs> and as a, as a dietitian, knowing where you are now in your career, what, what you're most looking forward to in the coming year? Yeah, so I think you've touched on this before, Anne, and for me it's about the evolve the involvement of um primary care networks in the in the community and and how the landscape's really changing and what opportunities actually could be out there for our profession to make a difference mm-hmm. so it could be that we're we're starting to have real clinical leadership roles for our dietitians out in these primary care networks to to really shine the light of what we can do um, yeah. for our patients so for me in the northeast we've not got that many posts as yet but there's the momentum's changing so I'm quite excited to make sure that I'm going to be having some real strong conversation with some of my management colleagues about how I can really pitch dietetics moving forward yeah, yeah and it's about marketing those services isn't it mm-hmm. comes back to uh, you know, actually showing people what you can do. And sometimes I think it's like you say, starting slowly, t- taking a step back, taking mm-hmm. stock, uh, because sometimes it's about getting your foot through the door. Yeah. Um, and actually you might be employed in a PCN to take on a specific clinical area. Mm-hmm. But those, you know, corridor conversations that happen, somebody then realises just how much you can offer and out mm-hmm. of that posts begin to grow. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's how other professions have really experienced expanded their role in the community and it'd be great to see dietitians doing that um, and moving into more leadership roles as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just a final question I know I look around me and think about my career uh, think about people who've inspired me think about mentors and I always talk Mm -hmm. to people about you know uh, look for a number of mentors because different mentors will provide uh, you with different types of support is there any mm-hmm. anybody in your work where you feel you've really you know uh, gained confidence from or experience um, people around you who might have inspired you yeah so there's there was there was one one of my um, managers my one of the trusts one of my first trusts that I worked at she she was the type of manager that was a coaching type manager mm. and I remember I just I remember the day I remember going into her office to ask if I could go to Bapen <laughs> <laughs> so I had to ask yeah I had to ask permission and she looked at me and said why are you going why are you not presenting and it was just oh. the way that she mm. opened up those conversations around actually I think you can do more and it actually was it was that conversation and that encouragement that actually led me to apply to be in the pension committee so it was it was it was just she was so inspiring because she 
she had that time to see, I see something that you can do. I see something in you and I think you could do more. And I just had never been told that before. So she really inspires me. Um, she'll know who she is. I don't know if she'll listen and I'll not name her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's followed me through my career and still drops me messages when I get, if I get a new promotion, she says, I know you could do it. So she's really oh. inspiring and I'll never forget her. So, <laughs> Oh, that's really nice. And I think that's lovely to hear. You know, I'm very involved in Bapen and mm-hmm. I always think it's great, you know, when people say, oh, I've done this work and I go, hmm. How about submitting it as an abstract? Because <laughs> yeah. it's really nice to share with the rest of the profession what yeah. you're doing. You know, yeah. it's great. We can she we was can like that. <laughs> yeah, we can learn from each other. And what yeah. it means is you're guaranteed a place at the conference if you're well, exactly. accepted, isn't exactly. it? So it works yes. both ways. So Absolutely. lovely that somebody that's a lovely story to end on mm-hmm. how somebody turned it around and thought, you know, uh, you're asking to go, uh, you know, and take study leave, and they turned it around and thought but you can you can do more than that yeah so um that really brings us to the end of this podcast i i think that's been so insightful for everybody to hear about the acbs and really to hear about it from from somebody who's on the committee at this moment in time who's on the inside and equally has been on it for a number of years now moving into second and third terms um (laughs) so you're really you know no doubt contributing hugely to the to the work of that committee and its outputs so it's been lovely having you on emma and sharing all that you know uh, with the audience and i hope everybody takes an awful lot from this podcast and uh, you know looks to be engaged with committees like the acbs in the future yeah. whether it's through a stakeholder consultation or whether it's to actually taking part uh, you know through being a member of the committee so i'd like to thank you emma for joining us today Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So finally, to reflect on today's discussion with our guest, Emma. To me, this has highlighted the importance of the ACBS and the products that they endorse in ensuring the continuity of care Uh, when patients leave hospital on a product and need to continue with it in the community. But it also provides the opportunity for medical practitioners, including dietitians, to initiate care in the community and choose the right product to suit the right patient and hopefully achieve some really positive outcomes. What Emma talked about really reflected on the rigour that the ACBS utilise in evaluating products. And I believe the recent moves that the ACBS have undertaken to engage and consult with stakeholders is a real positive one. And a key message for me is to make sure that as a dietitian, uh, it's important that we have a voice, not only in those consultations and as stakeholders, but also that we might be inspired through Emma's discussion with us to seek to pursue a place on a committee like the ACBS. I think what Emma demonstrated was uh, how diverse the products are now that the ACBS have to evaluate uh, and the products range from metabolics to oral nutritional support products to tube feeds and, and other areas. And it's really pleasing to hear that there are now a number of dietitians working in specialist fields that have a place on the ACBS committee to ensure that those actually making judgments and commenting on the products actually have the skill set and clinical knowledge to do so. 
For Emma, being part of the ACBS has clearly enhanced her own role and her skill set. And I'm sure it's helped her in uh, moving through the profession into influential positions, whether that's in management or in committees such as the PENG Specialist Group of the British Dietetic Association. And Emma also highlighted how having dietitians on the ACBS committee actually demonstrate our worth and our value to not only other dietitians around the table in the Department of Health and NICE, but also beyond that, uh, by influencing other people's perceptions in other clinical roles. So I'd like to thank Emma once again for participating in today's podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to the Dietetic Discussion. And if you found this episode insightful and helpful, please do leave a five-star review and share it with your colleagues or department. Before we leave you, I just want to say a final word about our partner, Nutrinovo. I'm really pleased that Nutrinovo have agreed to support this podcast, and I'm conscious that their innovations in clinical nutrition make this an excellent partnership. Knowing personally how ideas uh, discussed in such podcasts can turn into product ideas, I hope that discussions that we hold on this series of podcasts might even sow the seed for an innovative new product. For all the latest sneak peeks and updates on the next episode of the podcast, follow at Nutrinovo across both Twitter and Instagram, or alternatively, check out the podcast section in Nutrinovo's resource centre on Nutrinovo.com. Finally, thank you to you for taking the time to listen to the dietetic discussion. I hope you'll be joining me along with other great guests on further topics of interest. <laughs>